John chapter 12, the title of our message today is Building a Legacy, in case you didn't figure it out from your bulletins, Building a Legacy. We have a special message today. Today is Palm Sunday, 1983 years ago, on April 6th, 32 AD, Jesus Christ made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and was welcomed by adoring crowds, waving palm branches. That's why we call this Palm Sunday. John records it this way here in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. He says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. These words that they shouted, they, they come from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm, a psalm that, that talks about the coming Messiah. They were prophetically written hundreds of years before, speaking of this very day that Jesus would come and enter into Jerusalem. That same psalm records these words, this is the day the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, as Christians, maybe you've said that once or twice. You've heard somebody else has said that. You know, they wake up and this is the day the Lord has made and I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And that's fine and that's all well and good, but that is not what the psalmist was talking about when prophetically speaking, looking forward to Jesus Christ, hundreds of years yet in the future, the psalmist was talking about this day, April 6th, 32 AD, when Jesus would enter into Jerusalem to go and to give his life as a ransom uh, for many. Now, why is the coming of the Messiah cause for such rejoicing? Well, it's just that. The correct answer to that question is that the world needs a Savior to save us from our sin. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. And so what that means is that for every single person on the face of the earth, we are not perfect. We are born with a sinful nature. And the, the word sin, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old archery term. It means to miss the mark. And the mark is the mark of perfection. That is God's standard. By the way, he gave to us the Ten Commandments so that we might understand what his standard is, this mark of perfection, right? And the reason he gave us the Ten Commandments was not so that we would be able to keep them all because he knew we would never be able to keep them all. No, the Bible says that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. In other words, God says, here's my standard, go and keep it. And then what happens is you realize you can't keep it. And so there were all of these sacrifices that you had to make to atone for sin in the Old Testament. But all of it was designed to get you to look forward to the coming Messiah who would pay the penalty for your sin. Who who would be the only one that could make a perfect sacrifice. When I was a kid, I used to watch Bugs Bunny, you, you know, right? One of my favorite things. And there's an there's a, a, a episode where he's, he's in a, mag, uh, a magician's hat. And Bugs Bunny takes his hands and he grabs his ears and he pulls himself out of the hat, right? Pulls a rabbit out of a hat. Now, you can do that kind of stuff in a cartoon. Because, you know, cartoon characters can defy the laws of physics, 
But spiritually speaking, you can't defy the laws of physics as it pertains to your salvation. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and there is nothing that you can do in and of yourself to remedy that, to fix that. And so the Bible says that the wages of your sin is death. And what that means is that when you do a job, you earn a wage. This is your paycheck. You earned it. This is coming to you. And God says in his word that what we have earned is death. That's the penalty. That's what's due us. And the only possible sacrifice that will, God will accept is not when you, know, you do enough good works to outweigh your bad works. No, the only possible sacrifice he will accept is that who is perfect and without sin and without blemish, who can pay the penalty for sin, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible says that all of sin falls short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And that's why the gospel is good news. Because all of us are, are going headlong to judgment into eternal damnation apart from Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. And listen, in your heart of hearts, you know that there is something there. There is that, that, that guilt, that shame that accompanies our sin. And for some, it is your constant companion. You carry this guilt and shame with you wherever you go. Listen, you don't have to do that. Because God has paid the penalty for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And there's nothing that you can do, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing whatsoever that you can do. And so you need to know that God loves you and that he's made a way for you to have eternal life with him. Paul said this to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. He said, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man, uh, for, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you, metaphorically speaking, were spitting in God's face, sinning against him, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he died for you. That's what the psalmist celebrated in Psalm 118. Looking ahead to the coming Messiah. And so there was great cause for rejoicing, great cause for celebration because the one who would redeem us and, and save us from our sin was given to all of mankind. John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the reason for the psalmist celebration in Psalm 118. But listen, it was not the reason that the people celebrated his coming here in John chapter 12. That was not the reason they were celebrating and crying out. Even though they were shouting messianic psalms, it wasn't because they recognized everything that I just told you. What then were the people celebrating when we read here in the text that they went out and welcomed him in? Well, to answer that question, let's back up to the day before. And let's pick up the story in, in verse 1 of chapter 12 where we read, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, 
whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him, with Jesus. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. This is, this is Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus. You have Mary and Martha. Martha's her sister. And it says, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and, and given to the poor? And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had, he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. And now, verse 9, a great many of the Jews knew that he, Jesus, was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. It's kind of hard to refute that you've raised somebody from the dead, right? And people are going, I'm a believer. There it is right there. I mean, he, that, yeah. Verse 12, then the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, there's three things I want you to notice about this crowd. Just to kind of get a barometer on where, where is it? Where are they coming from? And why are they worshiping Jesus? We, we get three clues here in our text. First clue is that they came shouting, Hosanna. That Hosanna, it's a Hebrew word, it means save now. As I already told you, it comes from Psalm 18, the Messianic Psalm. And the section that they're, that they're crying out from is Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. I'll put it on the screen for you. Here's what they say. They say, save now. That's the word Hosanna. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now this gives us a clue of the motivation of this crowd's heart. What's going on? What is their reason for celebrating Jesus' arrival? Well, you see, what's going on here is that the Jews were under the occupation and the rule of Rome. And they had been for 95 years at this point. In 63 BC, Roman legions under Pompey conquered Jerusalem and they deposed the king. And so the, the Jews hated Rome with a passion. They, they, they were looking for their Messiah to come to restore the throne of David and to reestablish their rule over the land and to kick these Roman forces out. They resented these occupiers. And so when the Jews here come shouting, Hosanna! In this particular verse and section, what, it, what, what they're really saying is they're saying, save our nation now. They're saying, bring us back to prosperity now. 
take care of our circumstances now. And it reveals their hearts that their focus is on earthly things and it's not on eternal things. The second clue we get from this crowd as to where their heart is at is that they heralded Jesus with palm branches. Palm branches were a nationalistic symbol. They were the symbol of Jerusalem. They were the symbol of, hey, this is who we are as, as, as Israelites. And so it's not unlike the waving of, a, of an American flag. And so what the picture here is, is that, you know, here you've got this candidate coming in and everybody's waving American flags, you know, saying, you got my vote, I want you as president, right? They're, they're waving nationalistic symbols saying, here is our Messiah who's going to help us to, to, to get Rome out of here. Third clue is that they came to see Lazarus risen from the dead. You see there in verse 9, it says how a great many of the Jews uh, knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. See, the idea is they're looking for the guy that they can, you know, see as their Messiah to, to accomplish all of these earthly objectives, and they say, anybody that can raise someone from the dead is okay by me. Clearly, if they got the power to do that, they've got the power to deliver us from these, from these occupiers. And, and so this is their attitude. This is their idea. And so to the adoring crowds on Palm Sunday, they saw Jesus, listen, as the key to their circumstances, not as the key to their souls. And that's a huge distinction. We have to get that today. Because there are many today that come to Jesus with similar motives. They come to Jesus. Listen, the implication for us is to understand, man, we got to know who Jesus really is, what his message really was, and how great our need truly is. Jesus, you know, a lot of people see him as a means to an end. Jesus, you know, I could use a handy guy like you around in, in, in my life. You know, I could use a little patience sometimes, and I could use a little success in my business sometimes. And, and you know, I got a little, I'm in Dutch with the missus, you know, I could use a little Jesus to kind of help me get things right there. And, and sort of, you know, we have this kind of idea, Jesus is my homeboy kind of deal. And Jesus offers all of these good things kind of thing. And, you know, I've, I've used this illustration often, but a lot of us, Sometimes we, Jesus is a spare tire that we keep in the trunk. That it's, it's you know what, I, let me just live my life, and when I get a flat, I'll pull Jesus out of the trunk. And a lot of people, that's how they relate to the Lord. Here's what you need to understand. The Father did not send His Son to die on the cross so that you would get a genie in the bottle and three wishes. This is not God's heart. He has so much more for you. What you need to understand is your plight apart from Jesus Christ. That that apart from knowing Jesus Christ intimately, personally, as your Lord and Savior, apart from trusting in Him and Him alone, then then you, my friend, are, are seriously, gravely, mortally ill with a disease called sin. We have to get this. It's so important because this is a subtle thing. Are you truly trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation or not? I ask people the litmus question all the time, the litmus test question, how do you know you're going to heaven? 
And any sort of answer that, that contains, well, some, com- some portion, some concoction, some mixture of, I hope that my good works outweigh my bad works. Listen, my friend, you're not trusting in Christ and his work on the cross if that's your answer. The answer, the only answer that is acceptable to God is I know I'm going to heaven because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins in my place. And he rose again on the third day, conquering Satan's sin and death. And by placing my faith in his work and his work alone, not in my work, not in my good works, not in my, hey, God, I died saving a baby from a burning building. Let me in. No. God, I'm here, and and my only credentials are that Jesus Christ died for me, and I'm trusting in him. And my friend, that is what God died to give to you, is the hope of eternal life. And we have to understand that. We have to get this, that God loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loves you with an unending love. And so many people, they relate to Jesus in such a cheap way. You know, when I was a kid, my dad bought me this radio, and it was, it was a radio that had eight different frequencies. It had, it had, you could listen to airplanes on this thing, you could listen to the fire department on this thing, you could listen to the police department, you could listen to the Coast Guard, you could get marine weather on this thing, and it, it had AM and FM on it as well. had all of these wonderful features, but the only thing that I cared about was the AM radio, KHJ. Right? How many of you are old enough to remember KHJ? See? All the gray-haired, right? 1969, man, KHJ was it. That was rock and roll, man. And I, that's all I would listen to. And at one point, my dad, in frustration, he says to me, I bought you a $100 radio, which was a lot of money in 1969. I bought you a $100 radio, then all you care about is this $2 station. And a lot of people, they relate to Jesus in that way. That, that all we're interested in is the goodies. All we're interested in is the, hey, let me pull you out of the trunk and help me out of a jam. And we have no concept of the fact what we have and what is available to us. We have to understand that this is so critically important. Well, not only do the crowds completely miss it here in our text, but so does Judas. Absolutely, completely misses it. John makes sure to tell us Judas was a thief. You know, he, he, he bragged about, oh gosh, you know, that we, we could have used this money, you know, to, to feed the poor. How could you spend 300 denarii, which was about a year's wages, by the way. Our income, median income in, in Temecula is $75,000. That's what I'm told. $75,000 is the median income of a household in Temecula. And here this woman pours out the equivalent of $75,000 in worship of the Lord. And all Judas can say is, well, we could have that money. We could have sold that and used it for the poor. And John's like, he didn't care about the poor. He's the guy that kept the money and he used to steal from it. All he cared about, he didn't care about Jesus. He didn't care about furthering Jesus' mission. All he wanted was the $2 channel. Or in Judas' case, just the two bucks. That's all he wanted. And in six days, when it becomes clear that Jesus' agenda doesn't line up with Judas's with the crowds, they're going to turn on him and they're going to betray him. The question for you and for me this Palm Sunday 
is which group are we in? Which group are we in? Because we've seen Judas and his group. Let's take a closer look now at Mary's group. Look there at verse 3. And we read, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. This is, this is a picture when it says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Not only was it that the physical house in which they were in was filled with that fragrance, that fragrance but that, that fragrance arose to the throne of God. And it was a sweet-smelling aroma to him. Ephesians 5, 2, Paul says, when we walk in love as Christian, brother and sister, that God receives it as a sweet-smelling aroma. And so this fragrance fills the house, and it fills the house of God. And it comes to him as a sweet-smelling aroma. Now hold that thought. Turn to Mark chapter 14. Just a couple of books over to your left. Mark chapter 14. We pick it up again in verse 3. Same story, different gospel, just some harmony here on, on the gospel to give us some different perspective and picture. It says, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he, Jesus, sat at the table, a woman came, having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard, Mary. And then she broke the flask and she poured it on his head. Now, I want you to see, this is, this is a remarkable group. This is a mo- remarkable fraternity of believers here that we're reading about. Because they're gathering at the home of Simon the leper. And so, so here you, you, you've got Simon the leper who was healed by Jesus. And who else is there? Well, you've got Lazarus there who was raised from the dead by Jesus. And you have Mary and Martha, sisters of Lazarus, and they are women whose lives have been changed by Jesus. Listen, this is Mary's group. And and man, church is supposed to be that kind of place, isn't it? Church is supposed to be the kind of place where it's filled with people who Jesus has healed. It's filled with people who Jesus has raised from the dead. It's filled with people whose lives have been changed. And God is in the changing of life business. This is, this is what church is supposed to be. My question for you today is, does that describe you? Are you somebody whose, whose life has been healed by Jesus? Who, who, who have been, who's been raised from the dead? And maybe not literally. And I know people whom Jesus has raised from the dead. My, my, my neighbor down the street was, was brain dead, flat EEG. And, and a Christian's praying for him, and he miraculously healed to the point where the doctor's like, well, maybe I, we think the test was wrong. Well, the test was not wrong. That man was raised from the dead. He lives today. He's completely 100%. But maybe you're somebody who God, metaphorically speaking, has raised from the dead. You, you are a person who, who were, were dead, addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol. We have brothers in the church that share about how, man, I was, I was once dead. I was walking in death. And Jesus Christ came into my life and he saved me. He pulled me out. 
of hell on earth. And listen, Jesus can do that for you today. My question is, are, are you walking in that, that victory? Has God changed your life? Because he wants to do that today. Well, there in the midst of this group, Mary produces this alabaster jar. And, and, it, and it's filled with this spikenard oil. And she pours it out on Jesus. Now, some people here, they, they imagine that there's a contradiction. Because you read in John's gospel, it says that she poured it out on his feet and wiped it with her hair. And you read it here in Mark's gospel, and, and it says she poured it out on his head. And some will try and reconcile these two, and they'll say, well, it was two different Marys. But, you know, the, the circumstantial evidence is pretty compelling it, it, both of them happen right before Passover. Both of them happen at a meal. Both of them happen, you know, in this, assemb- this unique assembly of saints there in the, in the midst. Both of them have people that are, that are, that are scoffing, right? At, oh, that, you know, what, it, I mean, it's just, it's just too similar to be two different events. This was the exact same event. So how do you reconcile this? How do you say, well, gosh, the one says he poured it on his feet, the other on his head. Well, here's the thing. She had a pound of the stuff. She had a pound of this stuff. She's anointing his body for burial. That's what Jesus said. And, and so what she's doing, she's lavishing Jesus with what she has to give. She, she is, has, she's carried this thing her whole life. See, in, in this day and age, they didn't have a bank. If you had money, you couldn't go put your money on deposit in the bank and, and you know, guarantee its security, you know? And so a lot of times what people would do with their money is they would invest it in something valuable. Pliny the Elder, who was a first century historian, he, he said that, that alabaster jars, things that were stored in alabaster, were of the finest quality. And, and this spikenard, we know from Judas' own testimony, it was worth a, a year's wages. Modern equivalency was worth about $75,000. And, and so what would happen is they would keep their valuables in these things. And these alabaster jars, listen, they, the only way you could access the content, because they had this narrow neck, would be to break the neck. Once it's opened, it's poured out. You don't, there's, not, there's not a storing or a keeping it after that. She's broken before the Lord. She just pours out this, this, this thing for her. And a lot of people will speculate here that what this was, what Mary had to offer the Lord in her worship, it was her dowry. This was, this was the embodiment of all of Mary's hopes and dreams poured out on the Lord in a sweet gesture of, Lord, I love you. See, what, what Judas focused on is what he could get. Mary focused on what she could give. Now, I want you to notice in verses 6 through 9 here in Mark 14 what Jesus says of Mary's gift. Lazarus is, or, uh, uh, Judas is criticizing her sharply, but Jesus said, verse 6, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? And that word trouble, it means to strike or to beat or to cut. And this is what he's doing with his words. He's, he's striking and beating on her and cutting her down. And he's, and he's riling up other people to join him in his ridicule of Mary. And Jesus says, why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. That word means good and beautiful. 
He says, for you have the poor with you always, and whomever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And amazing, verse 9, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Listen, why does Jesus memorialize Mary and what she did in this? Here's why. Don't miss this. Because Mary set for you and for me an example. She set an example, and Jesus wants everybody to hear what she has done, and he wants everyone to remember what she's done because she has set for us an example that we should follow. And it's not just that she sacrificed to worship the Lord. Yes, we need to get that. It's not just that she sacrificed greatly of her possessions and of her greatest treasure to worship the Lord. Yes, that's important and we need to get that, but it's not just that. Listen, it's how she worshiped the Lord with her possessions. It's how she worshiped the Lord with her possessions because what you need to understand is everybody missed it. Everybody missed what Jesus was about to do. He's telling his disciples that he's coming to give his life, but nobody understands that. All they see, and this is why when Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? Oh, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. And Peter steps up, but you know, he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then he turns right around Jesus talking about his crucifixion and Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Why? Because he didn't listen. He didn't get it. He's like, no, no, oh Lord, you're coming. You're going to be the Messiah. You're going to rule and reign. We're going to kick Rome out. I got a corner office. I got my carpeting picked out. I got my paint picked out. You know, what the heck are you? And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Because I'm not marching according to that agenda. That's why Jesus came on a donkey. That's why it was prophesied that he would come in on this triumphal entry, not riding this great stallion, but lowly and riding on a donkey. Why? Because he came in to symbolize, look, I'm coming to give my life. I'm coming as the suffering servant. I'm going to return as a conquering king at my second coming. But here today, I'm coming to give my life. And Mary's the only one that got it. Nobody else got it. Nobody heard and nobody would, would hear. Nobody grasped the eternal significance of Jesus' mission, but Mary understood. And she used her treasure to proclaim the message and the mission of Jesus. You have come to die for us, and I'm going to anoint your body for burial as an act of worship. And I'm going to give you all of my hopes and dreams, Lord, because... This is all that matters. In, in, in the matter meter, on the great scheme of things, listen, on your deathbed, the only thing that matters is that Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for your sin. And you have the hope of eternal life because you've placed your, placed your faith in Him. While Mary didn't realize it at the time, she was building a legacy. How so? Because she set an example of sacrificial worship and the reason for it, to glorify and to magnify the Lord. 
And by glorifying and magnifying Jesus with her sacrifice, she bore witness to his message and to his mission. And so Jesus made sure that her legacy was firmly established in the Gospels and that wherever the Gospels were preached, that what she had done would be shared. This is what the Lord was doing. Listen, this is so that we might learn from her example, so that we might establish our own legacy. And here is our legacy to proclaim Jesus and his message throughout our lives and in our sacrificial service of him. Christians, listen, sharing the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world is not only the most important thing that you will ever do as a Christian, but it's also our marching orders. Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 16, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Preach the gospel to everyone you can. And as a church, like Mary, we have the opportunity to sacrifice, to build a legacy. And I want to talk to you about that in just a minute. But before I do, I want to take care of the most important thing today. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, you don't know that if you were to die today, whether you would live in heaven for eternity or whether you're going to hell, listen, you can make sure right now here today And before I go one step further, I want to make sure that everyone knows for certain they're going to heaven. And so I invite you right now just to to pray with me. Father, I just want to come before you, and right now, Lord, you desire that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And your desire, Lord, is that you would pour your life into those that are suffering, those that are sick, those that are living lives that are separated from you and the consequences of their sin is eating them up and you want to deliver them from all of that. And so I pray today that you would pour your spirit out on this place and draw men and women to yourself. Listen, if that's you, while we're in this attitude of prayer, and this is just between you and God, I want to give you the opportunity just to respond. If you want to know for sure that your sins are forgiven, that when you die, you will go to heaven. If you want the Lord to heal you and to raise your life from the dead, right now, if that's you, would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you? I see your hand, brother. I see your hand. Anyone else? I see your hand. Anyone else? I see your hand. I see your hand. Right now, anybody else need Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Those of you that raised your hand, I want to lead you in a prayer. And you can pray this out loud, or you can pray it in your hearts. What matters is that you mean it. Here's the prayer. Father, I surrender my life to you. And I want to trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin. Lord, I invite you to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. To cleanse me from my sin and to help me walk in newness of life. Father, help me know you and change me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, thank you. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, 
the Lord has taken residence in your heart. And the Bible says that when, when if, if we profess God before, before men, that, God will, that the Lord will profess us before our Father in heaven, but if we reject him before men, that he'll reject us before the Lord. And so I would strongly encourage you, you need to share with someone that you have given your life to Christ. At the end of our message today, our pastors are going to be forward, our elders are going to be forward, uh, several of our women leaders are going to be forward. We would love to pray with you, love to pray for you. I have a packet of information to help you in your relationship with the Lord, very important. So if you've done that, make sure that you tell somebody. I'd give my life every day to that right there. That's why we're here, guys. See people come to Christ and be changed. Well, I want to talk to you today about the opportunity that we have right now as a body of Christ um, to build a legacy. And, uh, and there's a lot I want to say, but, but I'll, pre- I'll preface it with a video and then I'll talk afterwards. So check this out. My name is Malcolm Barnett. I was born in Marietta. I'm the great-grandson of Jose Gonzalez and Eli Barnett. This building is Temecula's first schoolhouse. It was built in 1889 and they opened its doors in 1890. And it wasn't until 27 years later that Frieda Knott turned this one-room schoolhouse into a chapel. I'm standing in a legacy, one that began in 1915 when Frieda Knott took her own savings and sacrificed to purchase Temecula's first schoolhouse and convert it into what is now, exactly 100 years later, the Reliance Church Chapel. Frida started a legacy, one that would surpass her children's generation, her grandchildren's generation, and her great-grandchildren's generation. It's amazing to think that an entire century after Frida's faithful investment, this building is still being used. It's being used to make disciples and to proclaim His Word to hundreds of children every week, to junior high and high school students. We're using this chapel more than it's ever been used before for biblical discipleship of all kinds. For a rapidly growing Spanish church, for men's Bible studies, for women's Bible studies, and for so much more. All of this is possible. Because 100 years ago, a woman was faithful. Frida sacrificed to give to the Lord's work and to start a legacy here in Temecula. Her faithfulness lit a fire that's still burning today. A lot has changed since this building was constructed. It was built before Temecula had telephones, automobiles, or even electricity. It has survived 23 U.S. presidents, a depression, two world wars and yet it stands and its mission marches on as we continue the legacy that Frida built and we're going to continue that legacy by building a new home for Reliance Church alongside this chapel which has served so many generations Reliance Church is not a building and it never has been Reliance Church is a family of believers united in Christ and dedicated to making disciples But every family needs a home. Home is where we gather. Home is where we are fed. Home is where generations are raised up and sent out. In building a new home, we are beginning 
a new legacy. And today we invite you to join us in building a legacy. You know, last week I talked about how our, our lives are like these puzzle pieces and things happen in them. We don't even know. We don't even realize that, you know, things that happen today, how they're going to impact people 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road. The thing that stands out to me as I watch that video, as I think about the men that built that chapel, First of all, when they built it, they didn't even realize they were building a chapel. They were, they were building a school. Imagine this, that do you think they ever would have dreamt that 120 years later, children would be receiving Christ in the building that they were building? I mean, it's absolutely amazing just to think about all that God does and what it is he wants to do. And likewise, we have no idea what God is going to do through us building this church. As I said, the church isn't a building. It's us. It's the people. And it's what happened here today. It's people giving their lives to Christ. But folks, the, the system that God has set up is that he works through the local church. And it's the place where we assemble and gather together. And it's where we can bring people in and send them out equipped to be ambassadors for Christ and, and send people out with their lives changed. We're establishing a legacy for our children, for their children, God willing, for their children after them, the Lord should tarry. God's word says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. Well, I want to just speak real briefly. Let's show a loop of of the building if we could. Now, I just want to tell you kind of what we're building. This is going to loop, and I'm just going to kind of give you a rough overview. Um, And we'll have a table up outside, and you can ask it. This is the street side view, and you see the sanctuary there on the right. Here, they gave me a tool to help me with this, so here we go. All right, so there you go. All right, so this is our existing portables right here, and this portable over here currently sits right here. And so this is phase one. What we're looking at is building this building as phase one. Uh, This is the the foyer section. These doors will accordion open. Uh, And then this is, of course, the sanctuary. Um, Right next to the chapel, we'll have a fellowship court here. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to, you know, knock this hill down just a little bit to push this land out and put the building right there. Um, the, uh, section, and this is good that it's rebooting because I need to show you the section. So this is the front of the church here. Um, in order to keep the costs down for the first phase, we're keeping our portables and moving that one to here. That gives us the most amount of parking. Um, and then ultimately, in the next phase, we're going to build a building here and a building here. This will be our children's ministry so our kids aren't uh, you know, continually in the portables. But we have to build this building first so that we can get on the property. Because there's no assembly space on the property for us to gather for Sunday services. So this one has to be built built first. And the reason that we're phasing it is so that we can can get our foot in the door. We can't afford to to build this thing all at once. And so this is is, uh, why we have this here. Now, um, 
let me talk to you about our vision here of, you know, how we get there. Because whenever you give a vision, whenever you look at a roadmap, you have to have the you are here, right? A map does you no good if you don't know where you're at, okay? And so uh, do me a favor. You can go ahead and turn that off for a second because I want everybody to hear what I'm about to say. So I'll turn it back on. You guys can look at it in a minute. But I really need your, I need your attention here real quick. I want to give you the you are here, where we are as a body, okay? And w- this is where, w- by God's grace, we're going. I want to give you um, four numbers to get a snapshot of of the you are here, okay? Uh, Let me put some numbers on the screen for you. 875. This is the number of adults that call Reliance Church home, okay? Number of our adults, 875. Second number I want to give you is this, 96. This is the number of people who provide 50% of our total operating budget, Uh, So fully half of everything we do, every outreach, every church service, our VBS outreach, our WANA, the chairs we sit in, the electricity we use, the staff that we have on uh, on paid staff, it's all paid for by 96 people. Let me give you a third number, 332. This is the number of people who call Reliance Church home who gave less than $200 in all of 2014. Now let me put that in perspective for you. That's about $16 a month. If you bought one Starbucks a week, you would spend more than that. You spend 10 times that on your cable bill. Now, for some of you, that's the widow's might. I'm not here to bring condemnation or guilt. I'm just giving you the you are here. For some of you, that's the widow's might. That's, that's all you can give. That's a sacrificial offering, and praise God. But for others of you, it's an indicator of where Jesus ranks in your life. Let me give you a fourth number, 167. This is the number of people who call Reliance Church their home who gave absolutely nothing in 2014. 167. Listen to me. We have an opportunity today to build a legacy here in Temecula Valley. We have an opportunity to sacrifice, to build something that we will leave to our children and their children. A place where we can preach the gospel of Christ and pour out and see people come to know the Lord. And I'm asking you today, Not to give what you can't. I'm asking you to give what you can. Jesus said that of Mary. Hey, she did what she could. And I would ask you, what what can you do? What would the Lord have you to do? Because, listen, for us to build this first phase, it's going to cost about $2.5 million. And we're going to need about $500,000 to be able to pull the trigger on this thing. Now, that may sound like a lot of money, but listen, if each one of us just gave $75 a month, we'd have everything we need in less than eight months. So I'm asking you to pray because here's the thing. The Bible says we're stewards. And I think of Frida Knott's stewardship. And I wonder how many people are going to say to Frida Knott in heaven, listen, 
I received Christ in that little chapel that you sacrificed to purchase. Some of our own children are going to say that to Frida not. And here's the truth. God's doing a work here in Temecula. We saw it this morning. He's drawing people to himself. He's given us this land. He gave it to us. He's entrusted us with this chapel. We are driving it like we stole it, man. Right? And he's giving you and I an invitation today to join him in the work that he's already doing. We have the opportunity today to build a legacy. And so I'm asking you today, whatever the amount the Lord lays on your heart, for you to commit to giving that. Now what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up on stage. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to worship the Lord over, over a couple of songs. And the ushers are going to be passing out to you a commitment card. And this, we never do this. If you're new here, I mean, these guys will vouch. I, ne- I never do anything like this, okay? But, but the fact of the matter is, if we're going to build this, this is, this is what it takes. Every single church building that's ever been built is built because of the money that's given in the, in the offering. Now, what we receive in our offering, it pays for all of our operations. If we're going to come up with $500,000, we have to come up with $500,000 over and above that. So they're going to pass out these cards. And what I'm going to ask you to do during the first song is you prayerfully consider. And listen, if you feel like I'm manipulating you, if you you resent me for asking this, then don't give anything. I'm just asking you to give what you can and what the Lord would have you to give. And so as these cards go out, I'm asking you, if you're here with your spouse, just during this next song, would you prayerfully consider a number that you can commit to giving every month? And, and you date it for when you want it to start. We've taken the offering today. You know, maybe you say, I, I, don't, I, I don't want it to start until the, the first of next month. Okay, fine. Just date it for when you want to start. Fill out the particulars. This is, this is going to be a, a, an automatic deduction that you're going to give so that we can, we can build this. So take this next song. Just prayerfully consider that. And then on the song after that, we're going we're gonna to pass the bags to collect them, all right? And, and again, look, full information, this is not solicitation. This is saying this is what God's called us to do if you agree. And if the Lord is laying on your heart to say, what can I give? Then I'd encourage you to do that. But one of our employees came up to me and she said, I, I have zero room in my budget. And I was agonizing over, Lord, what can I do to give? And, and she said, the Lord made me realize that if I cut out cable, that I could give exactly what, what my husband and I should be giving. Now, the Lord laid that on her heart. That's just something that she chose to do. I'm just asking you to prayerfully consider it. And so let's go before the Lord and let's just pray and let's say, Lord, what would you have us to do? What can we do?